Good morning. For those of you that do not know me, uh, my name is David Thompson. There are a few visitors, perhaps, or uh, those who haven't been here regularly. I am not the regular preacher for Canton Bible Church. Uh, however, I count it a, an honor and a privilege to be able to open the Word together with you. John David and his wife Elise and family have had the week in Florida, most of it fairly relaxing, which is... Uh, which is a blessing for them. They needed it, and I'm glad. They also attended a wedding of a friend in Central Florida, so they're on their way back now. We pray for, uh, certainly pray for their safe return and safety on the roads as they make it back this week, or today, actually, hopefully, Lord willing. <clears throat> so I want you to uh, think with me for a second. Imagine you're hiking, okay? You may be a hiker, you may not, but I'm sure most everybody has hiked somewhere. And it's a fairly long hike, uh, a, a good distance, and so you pack properly in a, a backpack, a few extra goods, some extra water, you don't know what you're in for. And it is long, it's longer than you expected. And as you move along, uh, your weight's getting heavier and heavier. Every step is getting a little more, a little more treacherous. You check, you check the GPS and you're not even halfway there and you're getting worn out. You begin to think to yourself, uh, with my overloaded backpack and my gear, they seem to get heavier and heavier with each step, and I think to myself, maybe I overpacked. I don't think I can make it. It really seems too much. But you have to push on. Darkness is right around the corner. There are periods of life where hardships arrive unexpectedly often, and they bring somewhat similar feelings. You may go through an occasion of suffering, some hardship, under some type of difficulty that doesn't seem to go away. It's not just a day, not just a week, it's longer. You can't escape it. You wake up, it's the first thing on your mind. You lay down at night and you try to put it aside, set it out of your mind, and you really can't. You just want to get some sleep. Your struggle is indeed daily, even hourly. It's a form of a weighty, bulky, unwieldy bag that I have to carry everywhere I go. Where is the Lord? Where is His relief? How can I please Him through these types of struggles? Can I really make it to my destination? We're surrounded by various troubles and struggles and sufferings to varying degrees right around us. You will recognize most of these. We have physical problems of the body brought on by age or just bodily wear and tear. Maybe an infection that won't heal, causing you in the latter years of your life to have to surrender a limb if you want to keep on living a threadbare joint or vertebra that shoots pain regularly, sharp, that won't give up, or a, deady, a steady, dull throbbing that just aches. Although if we live long enough, we'll all likely suffer some sort of brokenness of our bodies. It's not exclusive to the elderly either. Physical inflictions may knock at your door at any age. 
John David, who is our regular preacher, at 39 has been battling a teenage sports injury for several months. It has his knee and leg begging for attention, hindering his love for sports and activity. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul confirms to the Corinthians that the outer body is wasting away. We can't get away from it. Our gospel of hope is not about health and wealth in this life. We experience repercussions from a surgery that inadvertently left long, long, uh, lifelong damage, scarring perhaps, damaged nerves that really shouldn't have been impacted by the surgery, or a torn iris that effectively brings about a functional blindness in one of your eyes. Was God in this? How do we cope? We struggle with various diseases, digestive diseases, that at a minimum alter everything you put in your mouth. And with a flare-up can cause multiple complications and pain and even surgery or worse. These things change your plans, your lifestyle, every day. What's God's intent with something chronic like this? We live with relationships that are broken because of sin, torn apart loved ones with various differences. Maybe it's brought on by sin, or maybe it's that you hold a different confession, biblical confession, than maybe somebody in your family, and they don't accept it. You live with a clear conscience. You really desire to express warmth and love to them. They're your family, and yet they reject it, perhaps even with antagonism. How long are we asked to endure these things? Many of us bear the results of decisions that we have made, believing it to be God's will, a family decision, or maybe a job decision, that we believe God is leading us into, and the result of which is difficulty, maybe even being fired or let go from a job. It's hard. We kneel to pray, and we can't even seem to form the words with our mouth to get them out. And yet tears flow really easily from our eyes. We mourn the loss of loved ones so cherished in our hearts. Will the pain ever subside? Will I be able to function normally? You likely recognize all of these personal struggles and situations within our local body, every one of them. And that, I guarantee you, that's not all. There's plenty of folks suffering various illnesses, maladies, struggles, hardships that we don't have a clue about. Our brothers and sisters within a small fellowship, these types of sufferings drive us regularly to our knees and for some type of relief but it may not come on our terms. Our prayer oftentimes is, God, please grant me a period of freedom, freedom from the pain or from the situation or from the thoughts that won't go away so I can breathe. But I don't seem to get an answer that I've asked for. There's this groaning for relief, a deep desire to see these things come to an end, but it doesn't come soon enough. Certainly not as quickly as I want it. Maybe not at all. We've prayed for loved ones for years. 
that they may come to know the Lord and that they may bow their knee and their heart to our Savior. Does God hear me? Am I really his child? Have I offended him so he's not going to answer me? Or is there something else wrong with my prayers? It's called long-suffering for a reason. It may, we may never indeed see answers to many of these things until we see the Lord. Ours is not a fair-weather faith. Scripture doesn't sugarcoat life's struggles and hardships and trials, and neither should we. However, this is a big however, it's been a downer. I see all the faces. This is real stuff, though, right? We live there. However, through Scripture, God offers a contrasting picture, completely radical view of suffering and trials. It should change the way we pray for others, change the way we pray in the midst of our own trials, change the way we counsel one another. We need to put on a pair of godly glasses, biblical glasses that allow us to see things from God's perspective. Wouldn't that be cool if I didn't have to go through the tough time of renewing my mind and thinking differently and confessing sin to be clothed with Christ-likeness? If he could just give me a pair of glasses and change me from the inside. And that's what he's about. We have to reorient ourselves with regard to hardship and troubles in this life. Our perspective is broken by sin, influenced by twisted thinking of the world, thinking that's often controlled by the devil himself. Paul in Romans 8 describes both our plight in life as well as creation itself as groaning. Webster defines to groan, the verb to groan, as to utter a deep moan, indicative of pain or grief. You can hear it, you've uttered it. To make a sound under sudden or prolonged strain. But the groaning that Paul introduces in Romans 8 is fundamentally different. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I'd like to read verses 18 to 24 and have you look for those differences as I read them. There is groaning in here multiple times, but there's a different picture of it that God lays out. Beginning in verse 18. By the way, you'll see the word comparison or comparing in here and other scriptures. We'll get to that later in the, in the message, but follow me as I begin in verse 18. I'm going to read down through 24. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is begging. This is me now. I'll go back to the passage. Creation is begging to see our adoption and their own freedom, eagerly longing for that. 
I read this and I thought, I think creation wants God to come back in our redemption more than I do. That's scary. Eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That the creation, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Amen. We are groaning but for our redemption to be complete. It is our hope through this life. Our groaning and that of creation has a purpose and it has a future hope. That makes it different. Like childbirth, the excruciating pain that I've watched has a beautiful outcome that makes it incomparable. The pain's forgotten like that. That's the picture. We have the hope of all His promises, and they are all yes and amen in Him because He cannot and will never lie. When I'm tempted to discour toward discouragement in various sufferings at any time in this life, there's a promise that I couldn't not share. I love it. You hear it a lot at funerals, but it's, it, it's for the living as well. Jesus, out of his mouth himself, in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. I believe that. Do you believe that he is preparing for you a home in heaven and where he is, he is going to come get you? You must. It is the only hope. He alone speaks the words of truth, the words of eternal life. His promises are steady hope and an anchor. The promises are abundant. That's just one. And they're sufficient to see us to the destination. This message and this study is intended really to look from God's perspective at our troubles and to remind us of how to deal with them in a way that pleases Him. As I dug into this over the last couple of weeks, there is so much scripture that addresses our struggles, our troubles, our afflictions. It's throughout scripture. The hardest thing I had to do was cull it down to something that is easier to communicate in 45 minutes. This is, we could never exhaust the stuff God has to share with us and teach us about our struggles and how to deal with them and what they're accomplishing and all of those things. A lot of scripture is given to it, and we will just barely do it justice. We're going to look at three things. We are born into trouble, just a little bit about 
trouble's sources, a proper predisposition toward our trials, how we, how we really, how our thinking should really change in regards to how we view trials and struggles. And then lastly, a real interesting comparison. I alluded to this a little bit ago. Twice Paul, once in Romans and one thing in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians four, uses the a, a comparative statement, and uh, we, I want to look at that as well because I think it's very enlightening for us in how we deal with our struggles. It it uh, certainly taught me something about my own perspective. So I want to pray for us, and then we'll jump into the scripture and uh, and these three topics. Join me in prayer. Father, if, if we were a, preaching a health and a wealth, the pews would empty on an intro like this. But Lord, we preach the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God that it might do your work. It might teach us, rebuke us, correct us, that we might fall before you with brokenness of heart, bended knee, in obedience, that we might share in your holiness. Lord, help me to communicate clearly and do justice to the topic and to how you would communicate your word. In your name we pray, amen. We're born into trouble. We all suffer various troubles to varying degrees due to the fall of men. We all know that along with Death came pain and childbirth, toil and struggle to make a living, all part of the curse. Additionally, we live today in a fallen and completely broken world from a godly perspective. It's undeniable that many and most of our struggles have their root in original sin, in inherited sin. The impact of our sin nature on our desires, our minds, our bodies, it's pervasive, and it results in all sorts of troubles. Job's friend Eliphaz rightly concluded that in this life we are bound to have trouble. In early advice in Job, he concluded, For affliction doesn't come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. As sparks inevitably, you've, you've sat at a campfire or anything, you toss anything and sparks take off and where do they go? They go up, obviously. They inevitably fly upward from a fire. People will assuredly then encounter trouble in life because of sin. And it is this inevitability that's in focus in this, in this verse, the certainty. If we're currently, if you happen to be in a stage of life where you really can't, can't identify any really tough struggles or troubles. Praise God first, thank Him, but prepare your heart and your mind because it's very unlikely that you will stay there. So what are the sources of, these tr we troubles, we, the, of our troubles? We implied them, I'm just gonna touch on three. Some of our suffering and some of the suffering we see is a direct consequence of sin and immediate punishment. God does and will punish all sin, period. 
There's no smoothing that over, making it softer. There is no sin, period, that will go unpunished. The question is, where will that punishment take place and when will that punishment take place? Sometimes sooner and directly, other times delayed or through more natural built-in consequences, but all sin will be punished. That's why a pure blood sacrifice in the body of Jesus Christ was necessary. It is my sacrificial payment for what I owe and it's yours, without which I'm paying for my own sin. We see direct punishment for sin both in the Old and New Testament. We could point to so many places, different diseases, illnesses, calamities, troubles, even death, through both natural and supernatural causes. You can look at the Exodus. Pharaoh's response brought about plagues, and ultimately he and his army uh, washed away by the Red Sea. Moses himself prevented from going into the promised land. Why? It was punishment for not believing the word of God. David's prayer and loss ultimately of a baby out of wedlock with Bathsheba. The death of Ananias and Sapphira for lying and their hypocrisy in the early church. It served many purposes, fear within the church, but certainly one of it was immediate punishment for their sin before a holy God. There's no indication that direct punishment for sin has ceased. We seem to think that it has at times, but there is, there's no indication in Scripture that that's the case. Certainly within God's rule, His authority, His power, and His justice to punish sin whenever and however He intends which really thanks be to his patience, his long-suffering, or loving-kindness, his forbearance, his mercy, for people to turn to Jesus Christ to trust his payment for their sin. Secondly, various troubles and sufferings are associated with the curse that are carried through our body. We mentioned a bunch of them earlier Paul says in Corinthians, our outer, outer bodies wasting away. We struggle with a myriad of maladies because our physical bodies wear out and ultimately die. No one's exempt. Though we want to discard the thought and push it away, especially in a culture like ours, think of the number of advertisements, TV or phone or wherever, that are aimed at trying to preserve good looks, young life, activity, Fountain of youth, finding the fountain of youth is still on the forefront of mankind, trying to prevent or at least delay aging. But it will come if God doesn't call us home sooner. And that is the Second Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. As believers, we do not lose heart. Though our outer body is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. These mortal bodies will bring about troubles and sufferings. The effects of our sin in our body runs much deeper than our bodies alone, our physical bodies. They're in our mind and the way we think, our wills and what we want, all marred and stained, impacting our desires, 
which are naturally driven to satisfy my body. It's all about me. Thirdly, some troubles and sufferings and trials are intended for the express purpose of glorifying God. The plague sent to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, which led to their ultimate demise, God says, so these, these plagues, and the quote directly from God to Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh may know that there is no one like me in all the earth, and for this reason, I've allowed him to remain in order to show him my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. God's purposes are always multifaceted, but we know his interest in his glory is both rightfully and always assumed. In the beginning of John 9, Jesus was walking down the road with his disciples and they Pass by, I'll just read the passage. As they passed by, the disciples and Jesus saw a man blind from birth, a man blind from birth. His disciples turned to Jesus and said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, this is a grown man, and every indication is he's blind from birth. He's lived his entire life struggling with blindness, complete blindness. If that's not a struggle, I don't know what is. And it was designed so that on this day and days going forward, I, I can't wait to hear the testimony of this man and those who were, were preached to because of his miracle. But God's works were displayed. He was chosen that God's works through him might be displayed and Jesus would get the glory manifested on him. In this case, it wasn't the man. Suffering wasn't due to direct result of sin. God sometimes might orchestrate, orchestrate our own ailments and troubles to show his power and his preeminence. So it's not about me. So those are a little bit of the three sources. Let's look at a proper predisposition to the trials. By the way, we can go so many places for a topic like that in Scripture. I'm sure just a host, if you spend any time in Scripture, James 1 is jumping to mind, Hebrews 12 is jumping to mind. Whether our suffering is discipline of the Lord, which we'll touch on, or whether it's intended to be a test or a trial of our faith, the instruction for our response to these troubles is both in what we know, we're instructed on how to think, and what we understand, as well as how we respond. What do we do with it? I use the term predisposition when I said, if you're not going through struggle now, establish a predisposition. How are you going to respond? James 1 says it, that count it all joy when you encounter. That word is a little bit of a surprise. I wasn't expecting this today, Lord. When you encounter that, what are you going to do? Where are you going to run? Make it your predisposition where to run. 
Hebrews 12. Open to Hebrews 12, and let's read through verses 5 through 11. I want to make a few comments about the discipline of the Lord. If indeed it is God disciplining me, and we're speaking here specifically of him disciplining disciplining his children. That's the topic here. I'm going to read verse 5 and then pause, and then we'll jump through 6, six through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. This is our instruction regarding God's discipline for wrongs that I have done, offenses and sins that I have committed. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. I sat trying to, okay, how do I not do that? How do I take it serious? How do I consider it weighty? I seldom got in trouble in elementary school. I was a pretty decent student. But there was this one instance. I believe it was the fifth grade. I'm going to tell you the story. I don't even remember what I was corrected for, but it doesn't matter when you hear the story. I had to go to the principal's office to face the correction. I was sitting in the room with other classmates. And you remember the intercoms in the classroom where the office could call the teacher or whatever. Well, the intercom cracks, students get quiet because this is an important announcement, right? Uh, Mrs. Boggs, would you please send David Thompson to the principal's office? I mean, you talk about silence, everybody looks at me. I think I'd just gotten a death sentence in a courtroom. You would, you would think it was something like that. My name over the intercom, everyone looked at me. I was handed a hall pass by the teacher as I got up out of my chair, headed into the hall for the long journey down to the principal's office. I was sweating bullets the whole way. I did not take the discipline in the principal's office lightly. It was serious business. I was scared to death. It was a weighty thing. I knew my parents were going to be involved sooner or later, knew that off immediately, and I took it very seriously. How much more when the creator of the universe calls you in for correction? We should see this as a very weighty thing. And according to the rest of the verse, we should be thankful. Follow with me in 6. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that, you've in, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I read this week where some look at Ananias and Sapphira and counted a blessing that they were disciplined. Death, but they were disciplined, indicating that they had a father who cared. Verse 9, beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. 
shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. That blows my mind. How do you share God's holiness? But that's His intent. His discipline, the result of His discipline is not just for my good, but that I can share in His holiness. There was no holiness waiting for me in the principal's office. Lastly, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Training programs usually take a while. Training isn't instantaneous. Neither is our discipline. Our thinking toward correction and reproof must change. To the church of Laodicea, the angel Jesus himself spoke, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That's taking it weighty. That's taking it seriously. Listen to the reproof. Be zealous and repent. Agree with God. Confess. Get right. Bow before Him in obedience. So what do I do when the Lord lays His finger on an area of my life? Confess and agree. Humbly repent with a broken heart. Be thankful for the Lord's discipline, knowing it is from your loving Father who wants to share Himself with you. So what if it's a trial, just a test? I didn't see it coming. It's hardship. I don't think it has anything to do with sinning against the Father. At least I don't have a violated conscience right now. So what do I do with that? James 1 is the perfect place to go. Count it all joy when you encounter. That's when it surprises you. First response, joy. That's not natural. That's radical. That your first response would be joy when encountered with difficulty. John David didn't know last week, he made a couple of comments regarding hardships in his sermon. He said, we think hardship is bad. We just automatically think hardship is bad. This, this whole topic feels bad. That's not God's picture of life on earth at all. He's accomplishing something so much greater, and we're going to look at that as we move on through. Psalm 119, 67, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. He wandered. He sinned. He wasn't paying attention to God's Word. He says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your Word. It's probably one of the... (laughs) one of the natural outcomes of our sinful nature tendencies principles and I despise it I despise it and that is that when things are going well I've got what I need I'm not hungry got a car that works a wife that loves me I'm coasting baby I don't have need and, and the natural tendency 
is to begin to think that I deserve this, I got this by my own hand, all the things that are prideful. I hate that principle, but it's in, it is in every single person, and we have to reject it. God uses affliction to show us our need and to draw us to himself. So if it's not discipline, count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness, interesting, let steadfast, you've got to do something here. You've got to let something happen. You've got to let patience have its complete work. I want out of the pain of the difficulty. He says, no, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is some spiritual maturing and completing of our nature before God that trials alone can accomplish. We grow in patient endurance, godly character. Now our will is involved. We must remain patient, not one out so bad that I shortcut God's intended training of me. So that's James 1. If you, if you open these, in fact, let me have you. Put your finger in James 1, then I want you to turn to 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. We're going to, you need three fingers here. I'm going to give you three different passages we're going to look at. James 1, we just read. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. It's a neighbor to James. It's not far away. So James 1 began with count it all joy. 1 Peter 1 and verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this we rejoice. I was a, as a teenager, I found a diamond ring out near the road in my front yard. I was ecstatic. As a teenager, you know what a solitaire is worth. So, I mean, every, it was either gold, white gold, or silver uh, band with a decent-sized solitaire on it, a wedding band. Showed it to my parents. We did what we could to talk to neighbors. Nobody would claim it. I was pumped. Where do you come into that kind of dough as a teenager? So I'm excited. They said, well, we can't find the owner. You can have it. Yes. So I decided and got my dad to take me to a jeweler so we could appraise it, see what I'm in for. And the first thing he does is take little electrodes to see if it conducts electricity. And I don't know whether it did or it didn't, but it was a CZ. It was a cubic zirconium. It was worth maybe five bucks. <laughs> this jeweler tested the genuineness of that diamond and found it not worth anything. So why does God test the genuineness of our faith? Doesn't he already know that? Isn't he God? Doesn't he know everything? So what is it for? It is for you and for me to respond in a godly way that the genuineness of our faith might be proven to ourselves and to one another. 
It's for our benefit that we bear up and trust him over the long haul. The third passage is Romans 5. So you've got James 1, you've got 1 Peter 1. Now put another finger in James 5, if you would. Verses 2 through 5, uh, 2 through 5 in chapter 5. This is on the heels of the best explanation of justification and peace before God that we have in Scripture. Paul's verse 1, in fact, of 5 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he begins 2. Let's read 2 through 5 together. We rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Well, that's natural that we should rejoice there, right? Hope of the glory of God, what a beautiful thing. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Another version says hope does not disappoint, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been giving, given to us. All three passages, James 1, 1 Peter 1, and Romans, Paul, Peter, and James, all three independently tell us that our response to trials of various kinds should be joy and rejoicing. Focusing instead of Instead, on, not on the trial, but on the strengthening, the proof of our faith, we're to bring to mind all the eternal benefits of endurance. By the way, in terms of our predisposition to trials and difficulties, if you're like me, you have something hit you, and you want to know, you, you want to rule out, have I offended, did I sin somewhere? And I just, I want to make clear that there's always room in this for self-evaluation. I would point you to Psalm 139. When troubles come, ask the Lord to reveal if there's any sin that I need to confess and repent of that is causing the trouble. Psalm 139, toward the end, 23, 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Totally appropriate prayer at the beginning and the onset of troubles and trials. If he does not reveal something and you can't bring something to mind and the brother or sister isn't on you on something, assume it's not direct punishment for sin and respond as James and Peter and Paul encourage. Job is an interesting study in regards to uh, sufferings and trials. You remember the very beginning, Satan goes to God and asks permission to hurt Job. Hurt his family, hurt his wealth, hurt his body. And the context in the beginning is that Job was a righteous man. I, I, I don't take that as half true. I think he was a righteous man. But in the course of 30 or 40 chapters in Job, as he's wrestling with his friends and trying to make sense of it all, and then in prayer and listening to God and responding to God, Ultimately, by the way, I, I think the first part of Job indicates this isn't discipline for Job over sin. This is Satan wanting to trip him up and God proud of his servant and knowing that Job's going to learn through this as well. It was God's way of giving Job the opportunity to show 
the value of God over his wealth, his health, his family, his prosperity, everything. However, over time, this is the interesting thing, over time, the suffering of Job was such that it stirred up within him sediments of remaining sinfulness. He saw that he wasn't all he's cracked up to be. I believe, I believe if you looked at Job, he was a wonderful man. I think he was a righteous guy from the outside. I think he treated people well. I think he went to synagogue. I think whatever. And from the heart. But he wasn't perfect. And through the suffering, listen what he declared in Job 42, 5 through 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Whew, this is a righteous man. Affliction and trials are not intended for Job as discipline or for us at times, but they will often bring to the surface sin which I wasn't aware of, attitudes and struggles that I didn't even, they weren't on the surface because things were smooth. Now the afflictions brought it to the surface and God has put his finger on something that I truly need to confess. That was Job's case. So what, what do I do? It, it, by the way, this is God's way of purifying his sons and daughters that we might share again in his holiness and be more like Jesus. Again, you respond by confessing, repenting, thanking God for his purifying work in us. By the way, what new information, I'll read the verse again, think, what new information or what new focus led Job to repent? I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What do you think it meant he saw? Now I see you. I believe that in the discourse between Job and God, Job began to get a clearer picture of the holiness, the beauty, the power, the glory of God himself. And in light of that, I am a worm. I am nothing. Which takes us to the comparison, the last of our things that we'll wrap up with. This is a comparison we can't afford to miss or get wrong. Believers are not exempt from all sources of troubles and sufferings and trials as we've discussed. However, we do not suffer or grieve as those who have no hope. Speaking specifically to the Thessalonians about the death of loved ones, Paul said to them, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, clearly that have passed away that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Our grief and sorrow in this life should be drastically different from the world. It includes an element that's absent in their sorrow and grief. Hope in God's promises, hope in Jesus Christ, his victory, it is not final, great joy and glory are yet to come. So whether grieving over death of loved ones like the Thessalonians in this life, or managing our trials and struggles and sufferings, God's intent is that the future hope becomes our anchor, keeps us from wavering and floating with the waves. What's interesting in Scripture is we're not instructed 
to look for the silver lining in the cloud of our struggle. The silver lining's not in the cloud of the struggle. The silver lining puts it to shame in brightness. So Paul, in two passages, bear with me. This is uh, the last thing, but it's really important, this comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then to the Romans in 8.18, which we read earlier, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, prepared for us and revealed in us, momentary light affliction and sufferings, present time and the future. Brothers and sisters, there is a bright and shining glory that we can only imagine, and we should. Both of these verses mention this comparison beyond all comparison in Corinthians and not worth comparing in Romans. So if you're gonna make a comparison for me, I give you two things, I said make a comparison. You have to know something about the items you're comparing, right? We're comparing here our present struggles, our present difficulties with future glory. I would venture to say that you know well your your own present struggles. You know how they feel, Excuse me. You know how they feel. If somebody lent you an ear, you you could explain all the ins and outs of your struggle. You know their inconveniences, the temptations that they pose on your patience and your kindness and your peace. Conversely, though, we don't know enough about the glory to which we are instructed to make this comparison. So how do we improve that deficiency? I don't think it's an accident in James when when he begins with how to respond to trials and count them as joy, that right immediately following that, he, he points to what their benefit is in our life as a believer. Then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, where does that come from? It's not, doesn't seem to be in context with him talking about trials. If any of you lack wisdom, ask, because God gives liberally, which we heard earlier. I believe it's in direct context. The wisdom I need is to understand the implication of my trial. I need to know how to compare it. I need wisdom to see the future, to see what is the glory. Paul saw it, James saw it, Peter saw it. So we begin with prayer. Let's take James' advice and pray for wisdom that we can make that comparison that is hard. At least for me, you'd start talking about the glory of God and we want a two-hour conversation and about future hope in this glorious... I don't know that I've got two hours to talk about it. I would hope I would. I could talk about my problems for two hours. So I'm gonna just list three things that begin to get us on the start to understanding what are we sharing in this glory. Remember, the creation alone is even wanting us to see our adoption and our redemption. 
2 Corinthians 3.18, we share in His, we will share in His glorious image. 2 Corinthians 3.18, all we with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And John in 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we are now the children of God, but it doesn't quite appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And every man or woman that has this hope in Him purifies himself, even as He is pure. Secondly, we, share, we will share in His glorious body. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. You'll share in His glorious image, you'll share in His glorious body, and third, you will share in His glorious inheritance. Romans 8, You've received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Heavenly inheritance is not like earthly inheritance, fundamentally different. If my rich uncle, which I don't have, were to pass away, and there were dozens of you know, nieces and nephews and what have you. Or, or better yet, I get a phone call that I'm, I'm a beneficiary of somebody wealthy who just died and you need to be so, somewhere to hear the reading of the will, such and such. Until I go, what are you thinking? What am I, what am I thinking? I wonder what he gave me. I wonder how much I'm going to get. They're going to distribute his wealth. Joe gets 10%. Somebody, well, that's, you know, I'm left with 1%. That's human inheritance is a distribution of the wealth, not heavenly inheritance. It is a distribution of the wealth, but the wealth is unfathomable. In heaven, the riches are limitless. The joint inheritance each of us shares with Christ does not diminish any of its value. Like the bread that fed the 5,000, it keeps on growing, never depleting, regardless of how it's distributed. If we are to compare our light and momentary afflictions to the glory of God, we must get better acquainted with His glory, the glory of His image, the glory of His body, the glory of our inheritance. We should rejoice in these promises. The joy we should expect from sharing in Christ for eternity should see us through our toughest trials here and now. 12.2 of Hebrews paints the per perfect picture to end on. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for what? who for the joy set before him, he's facing the cross, what got him through? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand at the throne of God. How was it set before him? Who set it before him? He set it before himself. He knew the joy he was dying for. Our joy, his own joy with the Father,
It was the knowledge and understanding of that future joy when compared to the pain and the shame of the cross that strengthened him to endure to the end and rise to his glorious seat beside the Father, our Father. Let's commit to spending time studying, reading, talking about the glories of Jesus, knowing that we will share in his glory and that will see us through any hardship. Set our hope on eternity before your mind's eye. Pray with me, if you would. Father, these are tough things in your word that run counter to what we hear, what we think, what we have been taught. That I may not see relief from my struggles immediately, Lord, you are a good God. You are a gracious God. We don't take our eyes off of who you are as a father, your riches and your grace and your mercy and your goodness. But Lord, you are trying and are accomplishing in us something greater than what we think is our good, fitting us for holiness, which we don't know about preparing us to live for eternity as your children, co-heirs with Christ. Lord, help us understand, help me to get a picture better of your glory, that I might know how to counsel those who are struggling, that I could counsel myself and my wife and struggles in this life, whatever may come, bodily, sickness, financially, any other way, Lord. We know they pale in comparison if we'll just set our eyes on the prize. In your name we pray, amen.